want you to take your Bibles. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to read from verses 36 to 44 of Matthew chapter 24. When you speak to the layman's at the end of the service and tell them how glad you are to see them, be sure that you introduce yourself again to them. Tell them your name. Even if you think they, sh- you, they should know your name, do them the courtesy of uh, uh, tossing your name out. They would greatly appreciate uh, that. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus is speaking about the second coming here, and look what he says. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be. It will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We have a problem at my house. Maybe you have the same problem at your house. It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but it happens, oh, at least in the high 80s percent of the time. This is the problem we have. I will announce to the family, we are leaving the house at 9 o'clock. And what my children hear when they hear me say, we are leaving the house at 9 o'clock, they hear me saying, I want you to start getting ready to leave the house at 9 o'clock. Uh, those are two very different messages. Uh, honestly, uh, demands that I tell you that sometimes I am the one scrambling to get out of the house at 9 o'clock. But when I say we are leaving at 9 o'clock, here's what I envision in my mind happening. Uh, it's my fault for not making this explicit. I, I think that people in the house at 8.50, they're going to look at the clock and notice that it's 8.50. And at 8.50, they're going to put down whatever it is they're doing, and they're going to leave their room, and they're going to get ready. They're going to brush their teeth, comb their hair. They're going to uh, um, uh, uh, go to the bathroom. They're going to get all their stuff together. They're going to fill a water bottle because if you're born after 2000, you can't do anything without filling a water bottle. So you're going you're to fill your water bottle and, and, and put on their shoes and their coat. And, and they're going to, and so that at nine o'clock, we can all walk out the door. That's, that's what I envision. That's not what happens. Because they have heard me say, start getting ready at nine, not be ready at nine. Do you have that problem in your house? Uh, according to this passage, Jesus had a similar concern for his people. Uh, the circumstances here, though, are far more significant. He wants them to be ready for his return. Be ready for my return. He says it twice in this passage. Verse 42, he says, keep watch. And then verse 44, so you also must be ready. 
The challenge of this passage, though, is he does not say when he's coming. What do you hear? What do you hear when Jesus says, be ready, but the timing of his return is unknown? What do you hear him saying? We're back in Matthew this week after a couple of weeks off uh, for Christmas, and we've been in chapter 24 for quite some time. Jesus is preaching this long sermon. Remember, there's five significant sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the fifth one, the sermon he delivers on the Mount of Olives. And he delivers a sermon in answer to a question that the disciples ask him about his coming. When are you coming, Lord? And he gives them signs that point toward his return. This is, well, we believe that that history as we know it will end when Jesus returns. Uh, This is our, 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 uh, what we anticipate. It's our glad hope. It's our unashamed confidence in the future. Other people think that the world is going to end under different circumstances. Some people think the world is going to end under an environmental collapse. Some people think the world is going to end when aliens invade. Some people think the world is going to end through a zombie apocalypse. None of those people who have those beliefs are embarrassed about them. Sometimes we followers of Jesus are embarrassed about the fact that Jesus is coming back. But he's coming back. That's our hope. That's how the world is going to end with the return of Jesus. And this passage, we've talked about this, this passage in Matthew chapter 24 is one of the most difficult passages in all of the gospel of Matthew. It's because this is about the end times and followers of Jesus don't agree. There are some believers who think that the circumstances, the signs that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 24 mostly relate to a war that happened about 40 years after these events in AD 70 when uh, the Romans invaded Palestine. They came and, and suppressed a Jewish rebellion and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And most people think, uh, there are some people who think that these signs here relate to that. There are others, uh, uh, I'm, I'm among them uh, mostly, who believe that the signs in chapter 24 have to do with the second coming and are still yet future events. And, and Jesus is not thinking about what happened in AD 70, but he's thinking about what is still yet to come. There are some people, I, I, I find sympathy with these brothers and sisters, who think that there was some of the things that happened in AD 70 are going to be mirrored again. They're going to happen again in, uh, before Jesus comes back, that there's parallels or uh, repetition here in these two uh, events. Uh, his return is certain. The timing of it is unknown. And here in verse 36, Jesus turns from the, the, the circumstances, uh, the signs that point to his coming, to some of the practical applications about his coming. We don't know when he's going to return, but he is going to return. What does that mean for us, how we live? Today, what I want to do is I want to walk through this introduction that I just read. Then in the weeks to come, in the month of January, we're going to walk through the three parables that Jesus gives uh, to help us understand the implications of his coming, along with, uh, when we get to it, the end of chapter 25, this picture of the judgment that's going to take place when Jesus does return, all of that coming in the weeks to come, uh, Lord willing. But today, what I want to talk about is some of these foundational convictions that we have about the second coming, about the return of Jesus. Foundational convictions, things we believe 
that are supposed to have a controlling influence in our lives as we think about the end of history as we know it in the coming of the Lord Jesus. So here are three of them. Number one, no one knows when Jesus will return. No one knows when Jesus will return. He says this three times, verse 36, about that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows the day, no one knows the hour. Then he says, verse 42, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus thinks we're going to get the message. No one knows. Verse 44 is striking here in that he says um, he will come when people don't expect him to come. That's even different than he could come today. We're, we're thinking about today, yes, but there's some people who say, it's not going to be today. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't expect him to come today. Oh, that's when the Son of Man will come, in an hour when you do not expect him. Now, there's a number of things for us to think about as we uh, uh, understand what Jesus is saying. No one knows when he's going to return. Um, first, we, we, we should reflect on the fact that this, the unknown date is relevant for us whether or not, regardless of, of your view of the end times, whatever your view of the end times. Some followers of Jesus think that the next thing that's going to happen in God's plan for bringing history as we know it to an end is the second coming itself. Uh, clearly, no one knows when that is. There are others of us who believe that the rapture is the next thing that's going to happen, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we don't know when that's going to happen either. It doesn't matter your view of the end times. What happens next is unknown. You don't know when it's going to happen. It could be this year. It could be this month. It could be this day. It could be this hour. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus comes and your life is transformed. You also might see this and, and wonder, how can Jesus say no one knows. You won't know. You won't expect it. How, do, how can he say that in light of the fact that he's just given them all these signs, right? Verse 33, we didn't read it today, but we have in the past, but look at Matthew 24, 33. It says, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. He's, he's on his way. So how can he say on the one hand, here's all the signs that lead to my second coming, and on the other hand, no one will have a clue. How, how can that be? I, I, I don't understand that. And, and, or, and, and if, uh, if all those judgments in the book of Revelation uh, are still for the future in anticipation of his coming, how are people going to not understand then when all those cataclysmic events happen? No one's going to say, hmm, maybe the end is near. Uh, well, you know, the New Testament affirms this. Paul affirms what Jesus says. Actually, what Paul writes, so I'm going to show you a verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What Paul writes in the letters to the Thessalonians are based in part on what Jesus says here in Matthew 24. And look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. He said, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus had used that analogy. While people are saying, peace, safety, 
Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. People are, are going to be thinking this is a time for peace and this is a time for safety and, and happiness for all. And that's when Jesus will come. It's going to be like the days of Noah. Noah spent hundreds of years building that big boat. And, and he preached. He told people judgment is coming. And even in those days, even though with those signs, people were living as if they didn't have a care in the world. They're still feasting and they're still marrying and giving in, give, being given in marriage. I wonder, I wonder if this uh, no one expects him to return is related somehow to the delusion that Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, He's writing about the man of lawlessness who's going to come, this lawless one, this end times figure who will play a prominent role. And look what he says about him and about deceit. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 says, here it is, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Wickedness deceives. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, or in response to their rejection of the truth, God, as it were, seals to them their rejection of the truth. This reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. The end times are not going to be a day, days of great enlightenment, great insight. People will be surprised when Jesus returns because they will not want to face the truth. In the book of Revelation, all these judgments are coming upon the earth. And the text says two or three times, and people still did not repent. People still did not repent. They still didn't turn. No one, knows, no, one, no one knows when Jesus will return, and when he comes, it will be a surprise, despite the work that God does in judgment on the earth. And that's surprising, except maybe here we get an insight into one of the consequences of our human alienation from God. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. We are born sinners. We live as sinners in our alienation from God. And one of the ways that that separation from God manifests itself is that it blinds us to reality. We're not very good at learning what God wants to teach us. Do you ever have to... You ever have to keep disciplining your child for the same infraction over and over and over and over again? You have to do that. Do you know where they learned that? From you. Do you, have, do you ever have patterns in your marriage? It's just persistent patterns, the ways in which you fail and you can't, can't get over these patterns that you have? Uh, we, there's this obstinance of heart that is endemic to us all. The author of Proverbs puts it so poetically, this will just bless your heart. Look at Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. It's one of the consequences of sin is that we are all dullards. Dullards in God, in Christ's church. 
Yeah, there are no A-plus students in the body of Christ. We're all D-plus at best. Slow to learn. In fact, the author of Hebrews was thinking about this, and he, he says that sometimes we, we learn the wrong lessons, the exact wrong lessons. He says, Hebrews chapter 12, he's writing to us about how the fact that God brings training programs into our lives, hard training programs sometimes. We use the word discipline at times. God brings hard training programs into our lives. And he's, the author of Hebrews says, what do we learn from that? We learn that God doesn't love us, which is totally not true. We get the exact wrong message from God's training programs. We're, we're not quick learners, which encourages me a little bit. Is it possible, brothers and sisters, that we can be a little bit more patient with one another in our slowness? Jesus is so patient with us. We can be patient with one another, can't we? Well, one more thing to think about before we move on. Uh, if, if no one knows when Jesus is going to return, that means what? You better avoid preachers and teachers who claim to know when Jesus will return because they're wrong. They're either deceived themselves or they're lying because they don't know. We have a, a, a tradition about this in the church of, of setting dates and times. Uh, uh, Sean O'Donnell collected a list of them. In the second and third century, there was a Roman Bible teacher who said, based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark, I'm not sure why he used that math formula, he said, based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark, Jesus would return in AD 500. If you ever set a date, set one far enough in your future that you'll be dead, it's a lot less embarrassing. It's just, just a piece of advice to you. Many Christians, I'm going to talk about Harold Camping in a minute. Many Christians in Europe expected Jesus to return January 1st, 1,000. I mean, that makes sense, 1,000 years, right? Or just as many of us thought it would be January 1st, 2,000, because 2,000 years is enough, right? We were wrong. We, we were wrong about our computers failing us and killing us all too then. Remember that? During the Middle Ages, Pope Innocent III took the year of the founding of Islam, 618, added the number 666 to it, and said that Jesus would return in 1284. He was wrong. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, Mormons, made confident predictions about the second coming. He was wrong. Charles Taz Russell, who is the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, made predictions about when Jesus was going to return. He was wrong. And you know about Harold Camping and his predictions. Poor man was alive to see how wrong he was. I spent a lot of time in prophecy conferences when I was growing up where the preachers warned about the godless communists in the Soviet Union and how they were going to introduce the Antichrist to the world, the Soviets. Mm, I wonder if there was, maybe I could have spent my time a little bit better than thinking about the Soviets. No one knows. No one knows. And if anybody claims to know, stop listening to them because they don't know. It says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. They're going to have a big role to play, and they don't know when it is. Nor, this might challenge us a little bit, the sun. Oh, now, some of you are troubled by that because you're thinking about the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He's God in the flesh. How can he not know? How can there be something that he doesn't know? Because God knows everything, and if he's God, how does he not know? Well, um, we're talking here about this mystery 
two natures in one person, the divine nature, the human nature in one person. Bruce Ware says of Jesus when it comes to his divine nature that his divine nature is something that he possesses but does not always express. Possessed but not expressed. Think about it. He possesses as God omnipresence. He can be everywhere. Everything is in his presence. But the God-man is present only here in the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives when he's delivering this message. So he possesses it, but he's not expressing it. And the same is true with knowledge. He possesses all knowledge as God, but he is expressing it, exercising it at his father's permission. It's a mystery. I'm not all that troubled by the fact that he says only the father knows. His return is certain, but the timing is unknown. Now, here's another foundational conviction. Number two, Jesus' return makes our accountability to him clear. Jesus' return makes our accountability to him clear. Maybe this is why some people are slow to recognize that he's coming back. Because anticipating it means acknowledging our accountability to him. We read it from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Someone has done the work and counted in the Gospel of Matthew 148 unique scenes, 148 uh, either parables or accounts or miracles, 148, 60 of them talk about final judgment in some way. Matthew's serious about this. He wants you to think seriously about this. His return makes our accountability to him clearer. In the the last prophet in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, the book of Malachi, there were followers of Jesus and they were very discouraged in Jerusalem and they were complaining about the fact that the following God didn't seem to make a difference. It didn't seem to matter. Look what it says. I'm going to start reading in Malachi 3.14. It says, you have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? That might be part of the problem, that you're acting like a mourner before the Lord Almighty. Maybe you're not following him very well. Okay, there's that. Um, but now there's this, they're saying, we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. What good is it to follow God faithfully? It doesn't make a difference. Then, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. What did they say? I don't know. Maybe they said, hey, keep following. Don't don't quit. Keep going. And the Lord listened and heard. Does, does, Does God listen to what we say to one another on the telephone, in the foyer? People who fear the Lord, they're speaking to another. God's listening and he's hearing. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. (laughs) God says to an angel in his presence, did you hear that? What he said? Write that down. Write that down. And look what he says. On the day when I act, says the Lord, they, those who fear my name, will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. 
You may not be able to tell the difference now, but you will be able to tell the difference when Jesus returns. That, I think, is applicable in verse, when we read verses 40 and 45. Two men are in the field, one's taken and one's left. You can't tell by their occupation that one of them is ready for the return of Jesus, but one of them is and one of them's not. Two women uh, are grinding, grinding with a hand mill. It was a two-person job. One person would push uh, the one way the, the, the uh, uh, mill and one would pull and push. That There's a two-person job. One person will be taken, one person will be left. Uh, you can tell by the work that they're doing that one person is ready for the return of Jesus and one isn't, but they are. You will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now, some people think when it talks about this taking language, that verses 40 and 41 are about the rapture. That's possible, but it's not clear in the passage if he's talking about someone being taken for blessing or if he's talking about somebody being taken for judgment. It's not clear in the passage. I think it's actually judgment because of the use of the word taken. Up in verse 39, he talks about the floodwaters that come and take people away now he's talking, verse 41, about people in the field being taken. I think he's talking about taken in judgment. Uh, it, 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 it's not essential to understand what Jesus is saying here is that some people will be ready and some people won't. And when Jesus returns, you will know. There is accountability we're going to talk about this. It's a persistent theme in chapter 25. It deserves deep and careful thought. Do you have pets in your house? A dog, a cat, a, a, a hamster, a gerbil, pets. My suggestion for you if you have pets in your house is that you never ever invest in a black light that you bring into your house. You probably shouldn't do it if you have children either. So a black light, what it does, you turn the light off, lights off in your house and you turn a black light on and you shine it around and a black light will reveal to you biological evidence of your animals. Urine. You'll see urine in your house from your animals that are left there uh, with this black light. Don't get, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Uh, but the black light will reveal everything, and the day of Jesus will reveal all too. If he's your savior, I don't know how you're going to stand in God's presence on that day when Jesus returns and all is revealed. Jesus' return makes our accountability to him clear. Number three, Jesus commands us to get ready for his return. We already talked about this a couple times in this passage. Be ready, get ready, be ready for my return. Have you ever thought about the fact, why, why didn't Jesus tell us in this passage when he's going to return? Why didn't he give us the date here in this passage? Is he trying to catch us or trap us or trick us in somehow, some way? You've seen videos, I'm sure, uh, uh, of parents who are trying to have fun with their children and test them. So they stick their toddler, maybe their preschooler, in a chair, in their high chair, and they take, oh, I don't know, something really delicious, a chocolate chip cookie, and they put it in front of them, and they say to the child, now, this cookie, you can have it, but don't eat it until I get back. And they set up their camera out of view of that child, and they walk out of the room, 
And later they take great delight in seeing their children's agony over the trying to obey when mom's not here, dad's not here, but I won't eat it, I won't eat it. Oh, I can't stand it. And, and, and you know, the parents come back. Is the cookie still there? It's, why didn't Jesus tell us when he was going to return? It's so he could surprise us? Why, why did he do this this way? Well, I think that it's not announced for your own good. I want you to think about it this way. Let's imagine that you uh, are at home and your mother comes to you and she says, uh, I'm leaving. Here is a list of all the things that I want you to do. I'm leaving. It's nine o'clock because I'm ready and I'm ready to go at nine o'clock. I'm leaving. Here's a list of all the things that I want you to do before I get back. I will be home at 530 and you better finish everything that's on this list. What time do you start working on that list? Some of you smugly are looking at me and saying 901. Liars. Well, maybe not. The vast majority. When are you going to start? Well, if she's coming home at 5.30, 5 o'clock ought to do, right? I can do what I want until 5 o'clock, and then I'm going to look at the list. And you're going to look at the list, and you know what you'll find in the list? It's a long list, and you can't possibly do it all or well in half an hour. Disaster. Disaster. Oh. Mm. I was talking this week to a funeral director in Pennsylvania, and we were talking about the disaster that's happened at the Scheid funeral home. You've read about it. Andy Scheid is in prison for some of his malfeasance uh, that he did as a, a funeral director. And I said to the, this man, I said, it wasn't Andy Scheid, it was somebody else. I said, have, have things changed in your business or things about your industry? And he said, well, the inspections have gotten a lot more specific and a lot more strict. He said, tell me about it. He said, well, we're inspected by the uh, uh, State Association of Funeral Directors. They come into our home, the funeral directors, uh, they come to the business and they check uh, nowadays, especially everything. They comb through our financial records. They look at our um, embalming rooms and, 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 and inspect very carefully how we treat the deceased they're very strict. And I said, well, how often do you get inspected? He said, they can come anytime they want. Anytime they want, as often as they want. And that sort of daily accountability is actually quite helpful. Everything that's supposed to happen gets done because you don't know when you'll be called to account for it. In the coming days, we're going to talk about what being ready looks like as we continue our way through Matthew 24 and on into chapter 25. What we're going to discover at his heart is being ready for Jesus to return means faithfully doing what God calls you to do. Being faithful in your calling is what he, what he calls you to do. It's striking to me in this passage that Jesus commends someone being ready who's in the field or who's at the mill grinding their corn. It, th these faithful people uh, that are ready for Jesus to return haven't, what? They haven't sold everything. They haven't uh, stopped working. They haven't moved to a mountain and put up a big welcome back Jesus banner. They, they haven't stopped living life while they wait. They have continued faithfully doing what God has called them to do while they're waiting. Faithfulness in the field, faithfulness at the mill, one eye on the work and one eye in the heavens. So being ready is faithfully doing what God has called you to do. If you ever have an opportunity to go to the, uh, the uh, nation of Italy to a uh, tour of Europe, you may have a chance to go to visit the city of Pompeii. 
Archaeologists have been working in Pompeii for a long time. In AD 79, many of you know this story, Mount Vesuvius right next to Pompeii exploded. There was a volcanic explosion and it covered Pompeii with ash. And what's interesting about Pompeii is that people were living their normal lives and, and the ash preserved them quite well. We learned quite a bit about what Roman life in uh, a, a city in AD 79 was like because it's been so well preserved. And archaeologists have discovered evidence, geologists perhaps have discovered evidence of what other written Roman records have said, that the people for weeks had been looking at Mount Vesuvius right next door and noticed they had been shaking for weeks and rumbling for weeks. And seven days before the explosion, a large plume of smoke started to rise from Mount Vesuvius. In other words, there were all the signs there that an explosion was coming and nobody did anything about it. Nobody moved, nobody got prepared, nobody left the city. If they just paid attention, they could have been safe. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know, but he has warned us. He has told us he's coming back. It will be a day of gladness and a day of grief. That's why he says to get ready now. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we have been taught by the Apostle John to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And, and we do echo those words with a hope and expectation, the prayer that you would indeed come quickly, Lord Jesus. You'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll be with you forever. Now come for us soon, Lord, we pray. We confess, Father, because of this long delay, we confess that we are prone to carelessness and procrastination. Sometimes we are lazy. We think poorly uh, about the imminence of the return of Jesus. So we come before you to confess our sins and to ask you that you might remind us through your word in the weeks that are to come and from today by your spirit to be faithful in the things that you have called us to do. We would be, when you call us, caught serving you faithfully, some in the field, some at the mill, some in the classroom, some in a laundry room. Lord, we, we would be faithful if, if you help us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.